Hey there, everybody. We are so glad you joined us today. No matter what you've had going on this week, we are so glad you're here and you are welcome here because at Menlo Church, everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect and anything is possible. We hope you'll enjoy the message. Let's take a look. It is good to be back. I mean, it really, you know, and, and, and the entire Menlo by the Bay, you know, from the South City to San Mateo to Menlo, Menlo Park, you know, Mountain View, San Jose, Saratoga. Um, you know, we're doing it six times over. No, I have been here, I came here in the, for years in the 70s and 80s. I was on the building committee. For those of you here in Menlo, stuck under the wings and looking through those pole pillars, you're welcome. Um, you know, I was on the building committee that helped decide if that was a good idea. Um, I've argued about that window for decades, you know, the... Um, so it's good to be back, you know, where the, the thing we do, I've even stood here as John did and, and asked people for money, which I'm not going to do, because um, he's already covered that. Um, but we're talking about this thing called designing your life. You know, that's the series you're doing here for a couple of weeks, and it just so happens I happen to have written a book called exactly that. So, of course, John called, you know, now, but I wrote a design book. You know, we teach in the design program at Stanford, and it's a design book, not necessarily a theological book. So many of you are probably saying, well, where, where are you really coming from today? I want to know where you're coming from. Um, well, let me tell you where I'm coming from. And here's the story. This thing goes way, way back. And what it really starts with is, back in, you know, back in the Pleistocene era when I was a sophomore at Stanford, 19 years old, 40-something odd years ago, 47 years ago, um, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I didn't know. I was really struggling with the question. You know, and I went into the career fair, and I said, well, uh, could you guys help me? In, in the career center. And they said, well, sure, we have a whole building full of helpful people. We'd love to help you. What's the problem? I said, well, you know, the question is, what do I want to do with my life? And they go, right, what do you want to do with your life? And I go, that's the question. They go, right, that's the question. So what's the answer? I go, no, 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 that's the question. They go, well, here's how it works. You tell us what you want to do, and then we help you go get it. I go, that's easy. I know how to get stuff. It's knowing what you want that's really hard. They go, oh, you're supposed to know. Um, you know, you go figure that out, and then you come back and give us a call. Kind of go, that's no help at all. Okay, and then it gets worse. Now I go to the church. I go to the church, and I ask the elders, and I ask the pastors, you know, and now I get pretty much the same answer, except I get the additional thing. Oh, and, uh, well, have you prayed about it, Dave? Well, well, yes, I have. And Dave, uh, what have you heard? And they're going, yeah, how's that herd thing work anyway? You know, um, and I don't know, I'm not so sure what I've heard. And literally in the 70s, a common response to that would have been, well, Dave, if you prayed about something and you haven't heard from God, you know, if you feel far from God, who moved, Dave? <laughs> Perhaps it would be you. you know, so I just, you know, at least the people on campus were merely criminally negligent. The people at church piled guilt on top as well, you know. So now I'm both lousy at my life and, and I'm lousy at God at the same time. And that's, I found really helpful. Um, so I'm going along with this and I'm, you know, I'm talking to lay people I'm talk, and I'm getting nowhere. And a couple of guys that I'm friends with at the time, we all agree that this is really not appropriate. It's not helpful. These are all Christian people. And one of the guys goes, I've heard there's a guy in Colorado named Gene who has a clue. And I said, we must find Gene. 
So we found Gene. Gene died about two, three years ago, sadly, but nonetheless, we found Gene, and it turned out Gene had a clue. And that was the beginning of learning about, you know, what we now call the faith and work movement, and that sure enough, you know, work was a gift of God before the fall. Work is God's pre-fall idea. You know, and I started learning a bunch of stuff that I was pretty sure was there, but for some reason there was a conspiracy not to tell you how it works. And off we go. And I've been working on this question of how to integrate our faith and our work and our life and vocational discernment and do this thing called Christianity like all the time and everywhere for about 47 years. And that, that goes along and that goes along, you know, and then I go off into the tech world and I'm doing stuff and I notice everybody, not just the Christians, everybody seems to, how many of you, by the way, think your life is like kind of important to you <laughs> and would like your life to be meaningful? Okay, turns out a lot of people share that conviction. Everybody seems to think their life matters to them and they're all trying to figure out how to do this and nobody was born with documentation. We are a couple of weeks away from having our eighth grandchild you know, uh, and which I'm very proud of having pulled that off myself, you know, and, um, <laughs> and, but none of, yet, none of the kids have come out with, with a manual in their hands, you know, yet, um, so you really got to figure this thing out, and it's really difficult, um, and then years after that, somebody asked me to go teach a class at Cal, where I actually taught at Berkeley, um, for, which Cowboy would appreciate, you know, um, and uh, I actually taught explicitly through the econometrics department, the Christian doctrine of vocational discernment at a secular public institution, as technology transfer. And it worked great. And then my buddy Bill um, shows up at Stanford, and then we start talking in 2007, and then slowly but surely, we finally end up doing this thing we're now doing. You know, and so we're back at Stanford, and we teach this course called Designing Your Life, applying the innovation principles of design thinking to the wicked problem of designing your life at and after college to juniors and seniors, helping people figure out how to leave this thing they're really good at, now that they're in you know, 19th grade and school is over, what do you go do in the world? You know, and then the university says, well, that's great, but could you not only help students leave well, how about arrive well? Nobody knows how to go to college, much less leave it. Um, so we teach designing your Stanford to freshmen and sophomores who design their educational experience. Well, hey, the PhDs, they got a problem too. They actually graduate after 29th grade, you know. Uh, and so they've, you know, designing the professional, you know, which is frankly just like designing your life, but it's got a big word because you've got a PhD. Um, and we're teaching almost all the students at Stanford. So 15 going on 20% of all the students at Stanford take one of our courses. Now, these are, it's not a prep school. They're not all rich. 80% of them are on financial aid, but they are all incredibly bright. I mean, what do the really, really smart kids need the remedial figure your life out class for? Well, okay, we're, you know, we're, we're user-centered designers, so when in doubt, ask the user. So you go talk to students and you ask them a question like, oh, now what are you going to do when you graduate and leave and go into the world? What, what are you going to do with your life? Now listen in on what some of the smartest people on the planet have to say about that tough question. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I was going to go to med school, but... Some grades change that. I think I'm going to go to law school. Yeah. Um. Um. Ooh. Uh. Uh. I. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know yet. I have no idea what I'm going to do after college. Sometimes I guess I tell myself I don't really have to worry about it when I really probably should be. Okay, I won't tell you which one, but one of those people was the president of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship Executive Committee at the time. Um, you know, so this afflicts everybody. And by the way, do you want to know where we got that footage? At a career fair. 
This is literally when they're all ready to go and go around the corner from that little wall they're standing in front of and, you know, go through, you know, when, when the students, of course, students did the filming, so we get the truth, right? Um, and no, we didn't wait all day for the 13 clueless kids at Stanford so we could make them look bad and market the course. This took five minutes. And get it any day, no problem. Why? What's the problem here? Well, let's get really clear about some things. Being really smart you know, has nothing to do with being really clear. By the time you graduate Stanford, you're really good at the game called school. Being really good at school is not anything to do with the game called life and being good at life. We don't teach clear and life. We teach smart and school, and they're not the same. And we, we start teaching it now, but that's a real issue. And that's why this thing kind of took off, you know? So where did it go from there? Well, we started teaching this class, and everybody shows up, and then the university says, teach more, and then we, you know, we decide to write a book finally, which I thought was crazy, because there's too many books, and nobody's gonna read it, except, you know, two years later, you know, 460,000 copies in 23 languages later, everybody seems to be wanting to have this conversation. You know, and then you guys are running a whole series on designing your life, and John, who's a pretty good preacher, and it's not like he needs the help, you know, you know, calls up and says, well, hey, will you come talk to us? So why is that? Why are you guys here? It's Saturday night, it's the summer. Go out and play, come on. I mean, you know, what are we doing here? Well, I think one of the, one of the reasons that people are gathering around this question is because, you know, people are stuck. Um, <laughs> Now, what are they stuck on? There's a whole bunch of reasons, but they're stuck on some things, in particular what we call dysfunctional beliefs, ideas that are popular but not particularly helpful or generative, and in many cases, just flat untrue. I'll give you a couple of examples. For instance, I'm, I'm, this is my last college bit, you know, so a couple of students sitting around talking. Hey, what are you majoring in? Oh, you know, I'm gonna major in anthropology with a minor in creative writing. You all know the next question. What is it? What are you going to do with that? Of course, right? And of course, you know, if in fact you did major in anthropology with a minor in creative writing, you have two choices. You're going to be unemployed or go to business school. Right. So, but here's why it's a dysfunctional belief. 80% of college graduates, for those who go to college, within five to 10 years of graduation are working outside their field of baccalaureate study. Right? Now, just in this room, I mean, how many of you over the age of 35, I'm just talking to those, are still doing what you studied when you were 19. Okay, that's almost a small group. That's, you know, uh, um, you know, on average, it's like three to 5%. More in Portland, for some reason, I don't know why. Uh, but nonetheless, the, virtually nobody is doing that. And when you think about it, how many majors did they offer at your school anyway? On average, 35 to 75. How many people on the planet these days? 7.24 billion. Do the math. Do seven plus billion people do more than like 50 things? It's crazy. Another really popular question these days in the current zeitgeist is, hey, what's your passion? Or here in Silicon Valley, the way we put it is, what's your passion? What's your passion? Are you passionate about in low church? You're just passionate? You know, your passion is the worship team. I mean, they're passionate. Come on. It's terribly important. But again, here's the problem. Why is that a dysfunctional belief? It seems very popular. How many of you have been asked the question about passion in the last two, three weeks? You know, and keep your hand up if you enjoyed it. Um, I want to ask you, you asked the question. Here's the problem. Again, it happens to be 80%, not like that's always the answer. Eight out of 10 people answer, what's your passion? With either, ah, you know, I don't know, Dave, I'm hoping to find one, or I got a bunch. 
Which one did you want to hear about first? Now, what's wrong with those two kinds of people? Nothing. They're completely normal human beings. Be very careful. Questions have belief systems. And before you authorize a question to be important in your life, to critique your life or to organize your life especially, be sure you buy its belief system. What is what's your passion believe? It believes everybody has a passion. Everybody will know it early in life. Everybody will discover it before they've even begun to do it. And the world will offer you a chance to go out and to bring that passion into reality, preferably making a living, in fact, making a great living while you become skinny and sexy at the same time and popular <laughs> with lots of likes. All five of those are false. Passion is not an a priori given in the standard chromosomal construction of a human being. And the overwhelming majority of people who find a truly deep passion in life earn their way to it by living into it. it passion is the outcome, not the starting place. But this persists as one of the most popular questions of all time in the current modern zeitgeist of how we think about how life is organized. One of my personal favorites, you know, are you being the best you? Are, don't you want to be the best you? I mean, what could be possibly be wrong with that? Or we even have a religious version of it. You know, have you found God's will for your life? God's perfect will. God loves you and has a plan for your life. Have you found it? Are you doing it? Are you sure? Is this really it? You're not settling, are you? We don't do settling. Here's the problem. The word best has a specific denotative dictionary meaning. It means against a series of alternatives, there is one fair set of objective criteria against which I can evaluate those alternatives and understand how to rank them. So I can, in fact, look fairly at alternative, you know, A and B and C, and A gets a 72, and B gets a 68, and C gets a 90. So clearly, door number C is the best one. Now, if you're, you know, if you're buying, you know, remote clickers, or you're buying, you know, electric cars, you might be able to do that. But we're talking about lives here. Lives are a good bit messier. Now, as I mentioned before, I'm now, you know, uh, about to be the grandfather of eight grandchildren, I've got five adult kids, four of them are married, I'm on my sixth career, I'm 66 years old, you know, uh, and I've got choices. I've got real choices in front of me. You tell me which one's better. On the one hand, I could lean into my grandfather self, which I'm not doing much of, by the way, and, and the backstory in that, quite honestly, is when I was nine years old, my father took his own life. I didn't have a father. Being a dad was a really big deal to me. Being a granddad is a big deal to me. And oh, by the way, at Christmas time, my three adult children, one of whom I think is here, D5, are you here? Yep, okay, we're in trouble. The, um, my accountability team is here. The, um, uh, the, adult, the adult kids got together and said, by the way, Dad, we're so thrilled that the book is doing fine, but where did you go? I did 100 gigs, I was on the road nonstop for about a year and a half, um, and like, it's not okay. So the grandfather thing like really matters, because you know, the eldest of the grandkids are getting to be seven, eight years old, they're moving up that way, I'm gonna lose their childhood if I'm not careful. So I could lean into that. I could lean into educational reformer. I'm actually an unemployed marketing guy with a master's in mechanical engineering, you know, but nonetheless, I actually happen to now be perceived as an educational reformer. I could spend time on campuses and conferences all day long talking about how to change higher education. It's full of people in the room with all PhDs in pedagogy and curriculum development. That might even move the needle. We should do that. Oh, and I work part-time with a 
social entrepreneurship group called Praxis Labs that does redemptive entrepreneurship with Christian startup companies, and I'm coaching these guys to try to become people who make the culture we all live in a place that reflects the glory of God and brings about human flourishing. So what's better, my grandfather self, my educational reformer self, or my human flourishing CEO coach self? Which one's better? You can't get there from here. They're completely different. It's not even apples versus oranges, it's you know, apples versus frogs versus steel. Quickly, what's better, frogs or steel? See, there's always an answer. You know, um, in Portland, clearly frogs. In Pittsburgh, literally Pittsburgh, steel. Um, it's a regional thing. But nonetheless, the point being, we're talking about human lives here. Now, the reason best doesn't really work is what we have noticed, and I think is theologically very defensible, is God has put more aliveness in every single one of us than one lifetime will permit you to live out. I.e., there's more than one of you in there. So there isn't one best you. There are many good yous, most of whom we'll never get to see, which is fine. Now, the God's will piece, there's a little more to say there. Actually, we're gonna cover that more as part of the talk, so I'm gonna defer a little bit of the God's will thing. Nonetheless, with these dysfunctional beliefs, it's time to think different, or think differently. You know, it's time to think like a designer. So I'm not gonna briefly do the design bit, but particularly because it is such a profoundly Christian way of thinking, which I'll try to make clear. Now, first of all, design thinking, which many of you have heard about, you know, because it was born right here. It's the oldest interdisciplinary program at Stanford, been around since the 60s. The technical term is actually human-centered design. And it is a way of thinking that's best understood by contrasting it with other kinds of thinking. So for instance, there's engineering thinking. Engineers, I have a couple of engineering degrees, are great because they solve their way forward. They understand problems, well, what are called tame problems, well-bounded, understood problems, tough ones, but understandable, and it can actually get a solution in ways that stay stable and don't change with time. You know, when the, a bridge does not wake up, you know, on Friday morning going, eh, I'm just over it. I'm over being over, I'm stressed by stress bearing, you know, I don't think I want to be a bridge anymore. I think it's fall down Friday. <laughs> now if bridges could wake up and declare fall down Friday, civil engineering would be a much more intriguing career. Uh, but they don't, thankfully. You know, engineers can solve their way forward. Then we, you know, we got business people, plenty here in Silicon Valley. You know, and in business you're never right, you're, you're never done. You can make more money, you know, you can have the customer love you more, you can defend against your competitor more, you, but you're not done, you're optimizing. You know, if you go to business school, you optimize very quantitatively with great big spreadsheets, with fancy words and lots of acronyms. And it's a way of thinking, it's very effective for certain kinds of things. You know, the university, we do research thinking. We use a process for coming up with a new form of rigorous thought. It goes all the way back to Aristotle and Plato about how to think about how to think. We apply that both in the humanities and the sciences. But there are classes of problems for which none of these tools are terribly effective. Wicked problems, problems where you don't even know what you're looking for until you find it. And once you find it, you can't reuse it again anywhere. It was conceived by urban planners, actually at Cal Berkeley back in the 70s. You know, you can't pick up San Francisco and drop it on Wichita and think it's gonna work. It just doesn't work. They're human problems, fundamentally human problems that you have to live your way into. And they're always about the future, which of course you can't analyze because it's not here yet. And for that, what do you do? You do an empirical thing. You do an incarnational thing. You build your way forward. 
So design thinkers or human-centered designers build their way forward by having ideas and prototyping them. We'll explain that in just a second in order to get to the future. Now, that is a profoundly Christian way of being in the world, and if we want to really explicate that, including the metaphysical component, the spiritual richness of that, what am I really supposed to be doing while I'm building my way forward? I'm supposed to be paying attention. I'm supposed to be living discerningly by attending my way forward. And I would say that the attending way of being in the world and the building way of being in the world, you know, a discerning, designerly way of being is what we're really trying to pursue. Now, specifically, again, design thinking is human-centered design. I want to make clear, by the way, that is normally misperceived. The human part is usually about half understood. We think it's about making stuff humans can use. You know, do, do the buttons fit my hand well and ergonomics and that kind of stuff. That's great. But it's also how do humans innovate and how do they collaborate and how do they think? How can we help humans do a human job of coming up with a human solution to human problems that humans could use? And that'd be more human, which would be a good thing. So that's what human design is trying to be, and it expresses itself in two ways, a process and a set of minds. So the process, you have seen this because it's been around the berry for a long, long time, what we call the caterpillar. Uh, it looks nice and linear, it's never done that way, uh, but it, it, you know, it shows well. Um, we start with empathy, how Christian is that? The very first thing you do is have no point of view at all and go out and try to deeply listen to what's going on in the situation before you define what problem you're working on. You problem find before you problem solve. You don't necessarily anoint yourself, you wait to see what's going on, and then you have a bunch of ideas, and before you decide to even implement one of those ideas, you go and test it. You try it on the world called prototyping. You go do stuff, right? And then you make a number of tests before you ever actually release something. And it's very true in any product design, which is what this was conceived for, but it's certainly true in lives that step zero is terribly important. Step zero is accept. You can't solve a problem you're not willing to have. Now on this designing my life question, some of you, I'm sure nobody in this room, but many of you might know some people who, you know, as they complain about their problem and they struggle with it, you realize over time they're really not talking about their problem, they're talking about their problem with their problem. Now if it turns out you've got a problem with your problem, that's a problem, because you can't solve that problem. You have to start in reality, God always does. The only place you can encounter the presence of God is in reality. You cannot encounter God in the land of should in your head. Bill, my partner, and I try really hard not to should on people. I don't recommend you do either. I don't think God shoulds on you. I think God starts with, where are we now? Hey, Zacchaeus, let's have lunch. I'm like, what are you doing in the tree? You know, that's not where God starts. God starts with reality. We need to, too. Now, the mindset's really pretty simple. You know, we begin with curiosity, you know, and if, and if we believe that God made a good creation and God is going somewhere, what Tyler Deschardins would call the omega point, God's on the way to somewhere, exactly we don't know what that's like, but we know it's gonna be cool and we wanna get there, um, then hey, where is it? I mean, all Christians are intrinsically curious, right? And if they are, they're gonna be radical collaborators. That doesn't mean collaborating with radicals. It means radically open to and listening to every voice. A liberation theologian from Latin America would argue, if you have not yet heard from the voice of the oppressed, I mean, clearly Jesus' preferred constituency, the widow, the poor, the orphan, and the ill, and the prisoner, if you haven't heard from those people, you have not heard from God, because God is specially with those people. In every circumstance, there are the oppressed, there are the voiceless. Where are they? Collaborate with them, too. 
And if you do, you will hear things you didn't know you didn't know, and it will cause you to think differently and reframe things. Jesus is the ultimate reframer. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. He says that all the time. He's like a full-time reframing guy. How you think about stuff really matters. And where are we in the process? Am I, am I open? I'm hanging out. Hey, let's have dinner. Let's talk to the people. They're like, no, I'm setting my face to Jerusalem. It's time to go. Do you know where you are in the process? And when in doubt, do stuff. You know, the gospels are really, the gospel is terribly important. We're evangelicals. We think the gospel is great. And then there's a book that comes right after all the gospels called the book of Acts, where people do stuff. You know, it's, it's, you go rather than from the, you go from the gospels to long theological treatises. Quickly, think of all the passages where Jesus says, please write out your statement of faith. That's not really the primary thing. Turns out what we do is we live into this thing. We're doing people. So designers are doing people, Christians are doing people, why? Because if you get the human thing right, you can't go wrong, because that's what God had in mind all along. So that sort of sets up the, the idea of what life design is and how design thinking might affect it and why design thinking and Christianity get along just great. Uh, now, a couple of questions I want to run through fairly quickly. We're going to cover a lot of ground tonight. Uh, these questions are, you know, what do we mean when we talk about the will of God? Like, Whoa, what do you mean? You know, are you really saying there's more than one right life for me to live? Doesn't God have a perfect plan for me? Well, okay, we should cover that. You know, and, and wait a minute, am, am I... Or God, who's designing my life? I thought God was the designer. You're saying I'm the designer? How's that work? Um, okay, even if I bought into this thing, Dave, what do I do? And, and where do we start? And as we go along, you know, is there anything we ought to watch out for? So we're gonna cover that in about nine minutes. Um, so thing one, you know, is, you know, what do we mean when we talk about the will of God? Well, that's a, we do a semester on that. But let me sort of land on one of largely two places. People talk about the, way of, the will of God as either a thing or a way. And let me be very clear, I'm a way guy. Is, is the, the will of God a noun? You know, it's locked up in golden tablets in a box somewhere and you gotta find it. You know, with the answers, is God the answer man? Or is God the way man? If you look at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' primary theme of what it means to live in the kingdom of God, seek ye first and then, you know, on the way to, being people living in the imminent reality of God's presence always and everywhere, this place called the kingdom. And being a Christian is about finding that way of being in the world much more than a particular thing, a transaction or a sequence of events. So that's kind of where I'm coming from on the will thing. I haven't got time to do all the stuff on the theology of the will of God, but you need to know where I'm coming from, and that's where I'm coming from. Now, are you really saying, Dave, that there's more than one right answer to our lives? You know, doesn't God have a call for me? Well, sure, okay, look, um, every now and then God is astonishingly clear. You know, for instance, if you're Jonah and you hear, can't you spell Nineveh? Nineveh, do not make me get out the whale again. Um, you know, does God ever speak of that kind of clarity? Yes. Some of you have heard that kind of clarity. It's not the norm. It's not what most people in the scriptural record experience, and it's certainly not the experience of most of us. And you have to decide do I really think there's just this one right answer to my life? And a lot of people I've talked to about that question say, well, no, no, I don't think there's just one thing, a variety of choices, clearly, but I, do, I, I think there's some things, and I find very persistent the belief that, you know, particularly for those who aren't necessarily life-partnered yet, uh, that the question of, you know, God, I, do, I do know that God has someone picked out for me, and I pray for her each morning. 
And you've got to be sure you get that right. But even on that question, you know, so let's say that we're true, and, and, and you're supposed to marry Susie, you know, and you're supposed to meet Susie on the 332 train. And you're waiting for the train, but you decide you want to play one more game of Tetris or fun with words, and you take the 348, and all of heaven's going, oh, shoot. <laughs> Susie was on the 332. You're on the 348, and it's Shantae. Shantae's on the 348, and she's not bad. I mean, she's fine, you know. She's a fabulous, you know, child of God. Don't get me wrong, but as far as you, I mean, she, uh, well, uh, I guess we could work with that. You know, I mean, is God, is God in all of heaven running around, you know, hoping, don't, don't, shoot, plan B again. I mean, do you really think that's the way it's organized? I don't think so. Um, you know, so let's understand, it was for freedom that God set us free. Does it not therefore make sense? This is speculative. Um, but I should confess with you what I tell my consulting clients. The bad news is I'm terribly opinionated. The good news is I'm right. Um, <clears throat> so this is my speculation, but I suspect I'm right about this. The, um, if God wants you to enjoy freedom and growing into choice making is part of that, does it not make sense that God would almost not only every now and then, but almost have to place you in that situation where you find yourself looking at two or three alternatives and discern as deeply as you might, you cannot hear heaven hinting. And they're really different, you know, grandfather, reformer, social change guy, and you don't get an answer. How many of you had a question you thought really mattered, and for some reason God seemed to not be responding? You know, I can hear you, can you hear me, you know? <laughs> now, it's very common people will have that experience and go, well, I guess it doesn't matter. I don't think heaven ever says whatever. Look, if we're counting hairs on people's heads and counting sparrows falling from the sky, whether or not you make a choice that matters to you, trust me, matters to God. Oh, I guess I suck at discernment. Not necessarily. I mean, Jesus is not preaching to a Mensa meeting when he's giving the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, come on, people. Regular human beings are supposed to be able to do this. So what does that mean if you've really tried and you haven't got any clue, haven't got any hint? from heaven. I think what that means is God is saying, I really have a strong choice in mind. I choose that you choose. I want you to have the experience of the freedom of owning your life. And as soon as you choose, which I have authorized, God believes in his own decision to invent free will, he'll fall right in behind that because you are a subject. You are a friend. Jesus says we're friends. We are co-collaborators in this design project. Now, how does, this, how does this work? Well, that brings up the question of, are we doing <clears throat> wayfinding or navigation? Which are technical terms. Now, basically, navigation is when you've got a GPS unit and you know exactly where you are and exactly where you're going. You have all the data about the space in between and you can nail a nice straight or at least highly efficient pathway. Except life isn't really like that. Life is overwhelmingly about, I kind of know where I am, I know the general direction of where I'm going, and I'm really not sure how to get there, but now what do I do? And you wayfind by taking a step. So watch my hands. If I'm actually doing navigation, and I'm here and I want to go here, then navigation says, go that way. But if I'm here, and I don't even know what B is, I'm at A, but I, don't, I might know what A prime is. I can take one step, I can go, well, I think it might look like this. 
And then from there, I've got some insight. I'm gonna learn something else that I didn't know I didn't know. I'm gonna try something else. And then I go here, and then I go here, and then I go here, and then I go do, 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 and then I go, oh, and then I overshoot. I go, oh, no, no, it's back there. So navigation, here to here, that's the shortest distance. In wayfinding, literally, from here to there, 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 do, 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 back, oops. That's the shortest possible discerning difference. If, in fact, what's occurring is your life is unfolding before you. We're wayfinders. That's how God works. I've got time to go into it. Go back and read Acts 15 through 16 and Paul's second missionary journey and ask this question. How come he didn't get the dream to help the Macedonians back in Antioch instead of in Troas after banging off the wall four times when it could have been so much easier? Apparently that whole thing about rudders only work on boats in motion is true. Okay, now, what are you supposed to do? Well, this this is a sermon and a worship service. Let's combine Christian vocational discernment and discipleship and design insights about being good human innovators. And how do you put that all together? And you get four steps, which are walk in the way expectantly, listen for longing, cultivate the sacred imagination, and lean into the leading. So walking the way expectantly is this mindset, this posture, because God is always doing something, what's happening. Listen for the longing that God will grow in you, Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. You either hear that as if you're a good Christian, you get the cookie, which is the vending machine God, or if you fall in love with God, what he does is he gives you the longing, not the object of your longing. He grows your heart to long for what God longs that you long for. That's the gift of God. And then... Where might we go with that? And you and the Holy Spirit together collaborate, and then you lean into the leading. You do prototyping. You go out and do stuff. And your prototyping of life is, in fact, your contribution in the potluck party when you and the Trinity get together and try to find out what's next. It's a collaborative process. Life prototypes are the petri dish upon which God will grow your discernment. You have to do stuff. You can't just sit deeply agonizing on the couch doesn't help, as it turns out. Now, again, particularly... Where do we start? I'm going to focus on that first thing, walk in the way expectantly. I mean, where do we begin? You begin the same place Jesus did. If you go to the wedding at Cana in John 2, it's an interesting passage. You know, I'll summarize. You know, it's party day, gets up, puts on the nice tunic, goes to the wedding. You know, you all know the story. They run out of wine. And then Mary comes and says, they've run out of wine. I mean, makes it clear in retrospect that she's got a hint going on there, but we don't, she didn't specifically ask for something. And then Jesus says, woman, which is a term of endearment, um, you know, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. So Jesus, the perfect sinless Messiah, is quite convinced that today is not the day. And then Mary isn't quite sure what to make of that. And again, she doesn't totally manipulate him, but she doesn't completely relinquish either. She kind of artfully says, well, do whatever he says. And he could say anything he wants to say. And then, well, go get those six 30-odd-gallon jars and let's go make enough wine to inebriate the entire region for a month. <laughs> now, we could have a really interesting Bible study on how that's how Jesus comes out publicly, by making a ton of wine. Um, but I'll skip that part and let John do it later. The, and just point out the thing, 
you got to ask yourself the question, who sinned, Mary or Jesus? I mean, either Mary got it wrong or Jesus got it wrong. I mean, Jesus knew today is not the day, right? How does that work? Or maybe it works great if Jesus is, in fact, a human being. And when he woke up that morning, he really was pretty convinced today is not the day. And when he gets asked the question, he's going, uh-uh, uh, Mom, not now. And then she goes, oh, well, gosh, you know, this the amplified version according to Dave. And she's going, oh, wow, really? Well, the Spirit kind of knows me that way. You're pretty good at that, too. Well, I don't know. I mean, I've done my part. Do whatever he says. And somehow in those moments, Jesus goes, oh, it is today. Uh, let's get the chores. And what if that's perfect? It's exactly how it works. Even the Messiah gets just-in-time discernment. See, what we're talking about is, even J Jesus then, you know, three chapters later, says in John 5, I do only what the Father shows me. There's one of my mentors says, Jesus, the least creative man who ever lived, follow, 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 follow. We're just doing this hang out with God thing in a very active way. Now, where do we do it? Well, we do it right here. We do it right here in our home, Silicon Valley, USA. Not just in church. We do it all the time. But here's the problem. It's what's called the sacred secular gap. It's too easy for us to think Silicon Valley isn't where God is. We need to do this thing. We need to recognize that Silicon Valley KOG, not USA. Silicon Valley Kingdom of God where God is present always and everywhere, and you have the same capacity to recognize the spirit moving during a staff meeting arguing about distribution strategy as you do when they sing the song and Lisa and the team leads the song you really like the best. They're equally accessible to you as spiritual moments, which means you've got to re-enchant the world. We've bought into the secularization of reality. There's only one reality. It's God's. Every square inch is the Lord's. God is always and everywhere. Just because he's not acknowledged doesn't mean that's true. The real story is always God's story. And what we need to find that are spiritual sight and spiritual hearing. Jesus keeps saying, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. So that's what we need to work on, which are, which are God's sightings. So the homework I'm giving you, and I'm going to ask John to carry through on, is to start finding Evidence of the movements of God right where you are. Don't, what does God want me to do next? What changes do I need to make? Skip all that. Before you can be confident you're discerning God is moving something, can you just see what's already there? Are we as good at catching God in the act at the office, standing in line at the daycare center, uh, as we are in a pew? That's what we need to work on. And if we do that, you know, then is there anything we should watch out for along the way? Well, it's just one thing. I'll, I'll finish with that. That's our logo, not yours, you know, the designing your life, which is great, except there's one really big problem with it. It's actually wrong. It isn't designing your life. It's designing our life. We are in this together. God is first and foremost not an individualist. It ain't about you. It's about us. It's about all of us. And the whole idea you know, Ephesians makes clear the will of God is the union of all things, all people, all things in heaven and earth together in him. So as you're listening, as you're God sighting, as you're designing, as you're innovating, as you're ideating, as you're prototyping, it's not just about you. It's about us. And listen for the heart break as well as for the heart's longing and desire.
that God might be with us, and we not only design something that you think is really cool, but we collaborate with God and design a world where God's presence is more real for everyone. So as we're trying to become more, trying to become more what? You know, more, you know, more inspired, more called, more kingdom-minded, more kale-loving, of course, certainly, you know, you know, more innovative and just downright dazzling um, from a social media point of view. Um, that's great, but what I'm really saying is if Jesus is the second Adam, the call is to become more human. And may God help us do that. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I hope that this message blessed you, challenged you, inspired you to live differently this week as a follower of Jesus. And we hope you'll come back next week and join us again. And in the meantime, stay in touch with us on social media. Have a great week.